Good morning. Now, as we look on the American flag, each of us experiences within and may give expression to a unique response to that symbol. For many Americans, it's an immediate and potent response characterized by political pride. And I can't say hoo-ah like my brother-in-law, but there's validity to that experience within, that response that comes at the image of our flag. It comes with a deep appreciation for the historical arc of the past 245 years of our nation's existence. It's punctuated with moments of vision, valor, and victory throughout that entire arc. This type of response comes from the vision that prompted our ancestors to break away from the rule of a nation across the ocean. It comes from a recognition of the valor that gives rise to selfless courage that's required to see a vision through. And it's a response to the, the victories that have, that are, and that will, by God's grace, continue to bring our nation ever closer to the political and the social ideals that it's founded on. But as a nation, we've become, over recent days and indeed years, more aware that others, when they look on the American flag, find themselves stirred with a, a passionate purpose that is sufficient to carry the hope that the founding aspirations will one day come to full realization for all citizens in this still very young nation. The flag often stirs a fearlessness that won't be silenced. And for those who experience such a response, we have to pause a moment and realize that they actually have overcome on the battlefield, in the courts, in the pews of our country's churches, and on the steps in front of some of the most symbolic buildings of our nation. Their feats have ever so slowly continued to move us closer to the time when on equal footing we'll be able to enjoy the full blessings that this great country has to offer all of its citizens. On July 2nd, 1776, the Second Continental Congress voted in favor of independence. And then two days later, July 4th, 1776, Congress unanimously adopted the Declaration of Independence that was drafted by Thomas Jefferson, which announced to the world 
that the colonies intended to separate from Great Britain. It gave rise to, well, in George Washington's words, that great experiment of freedom. That great experiment began on that date. Later in 1870, Congress passed a law that designated Independence Day as a federal holiday. But it wasn't until 1941 that Congress determined that all federal employees would begin to enjoy the 4th as a paid holiday, regardless of the date, or excuse me, the day of the year that it landed on. So today, as Americans, we will be able this year to gather, to mark with parades, concerts, barbecues, and fireworks, Independence Day. And you know, after the past 15 months, I think that opportunity and that ability this year is extra special. And personally, um, I'm excited that there are new freedoms kind of happening again for us as Americans as we come out from under the lockdown of the pandemic. I'm, I'm recently aware that even the border to Canada may be opening in a, in a cautious way, but opening nonetheless. We just celebrated the two-year birth, second birthday of our granddaughter, who, along with our son and daughter-in-law, have been essentially locked down in Montreal. We haven't seen them for 15 months. But I heard that starting this week, things are going to be easing to the point that we may, in fact, be able to go visit them. That's a sweet freedom for us this year. We are, in fact, glad that you've joined us for part of your fourth today here, whether physically at Essex Alliance, at the North Avenue campus, or perhaps online. I just want to take a moment and read the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. A decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, and I would submit all women, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is our common backstory, even though today's holiday elicits very unique responses. 
Speaking of backstory, uh, those of you that have been here or at North Ave or online over the last couple weeks are aware that Pastor Matt has challenged us to consider what really is involved with living and growing as disciples of Jesus. Simply put, we find the answer to this question recorded in the Gospels and then further expanded upon in the rest of the New Testament. Now, the term gospel, a single word, really actually is pointing to a collection of four accounts of Jesus. Three of these are very similar. Matthew's gospel, Mark's, and Luke's. In fact, there is such similarity among those three gospel accounts that they're often grouped together and referred to as the synoptic gospels because they individually but pointedly in a collective way provide a narrative of Jesus' life. Though they involve significant overlap between them, they all carry a unique emphasis in their narrative. But John's gospel, different from the three, actually carries a totally different emphasis. The synoptics are a presentation of Jesus, outward life, whereas John is an interpretation of Jesus' life. The synoptics as a group emphasize Jesus' humanity, whereas John's gospel begins and continues to emphasize his divinity. Listen to the words of the opening declaration in John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning, and all things were created by Him. Apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Dropping down to verse 12, John writes, But to all who have received Him, those who believe His name, He has given the right to become God's children. Now the word became flesh, verse 14, and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. The synoptics focus on what Jesus did. John tells us who he is. He is the word. He is life. He is the light. He is the source. He is God incarnate. So John's account differs significantly from the synoptics, right from the very opening declaration. But this morning, the passage that I want to be looking at comes from the eighth chapter of John's gospel. And I want to begin reading that. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I want to pause for a moment and just offer a prayer. Father, as we gather together this morning, intending to sit at your feet, to spend time in your word, so that we would better understand how to practice, to live out your teaching, we gather together with others who are also seeking to be and are already perhaps identified as disciples. So, Lord, I just ask that you would teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I see three primary concepts in these verses from chapter 8. Truth, slavery, and freedom. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, it's significant, that single word, as Jesus begins speaking, if. That's a conditional word. Everything that follows hinges on whether or not the if is answered affirmatively. He's challenging those Jews who believed in him to abide in his word. And we think of, at least I think of, when I, when I read or hear the word abide, I think of kind of a passive stature, just sort of being, abiding. But actually, it's, it's a very active, continuing in or with something. And it requires both commitment and effort. It requires endurance and perseverance. It is very active. It's been said that it's easier to come to Jesus than it is to continue in him. We are to continue with effort and perseverance in his word, in his teaching, both spoken and lived. The psalmist wrote centuries before Jesus walked the earth, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So abiding in his word 
becomes an arsenal of strength, a strength for choice. Now, a disciple, as Matt described, and and I think Scripture makes plain, is one who is a follower, a student, an apprentice of Jesus, recognized by Jesus and recognizable in the eyes of the world who look upon our lives. Because over time, a disciple who continues to abide to persist, to actively engage with the word, will look more and more like the master. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and you know the truth by way of abiding. You know, it seems today there's no end to the debate about what is truth. There are so many competing claims. And truth truly is difficult to often even discuss with someone else. But it's challenging to grasp and to actually know. In the world of philosophy, there's a very fancy title to those who study the notion of truth. Aleophologists never heard the term. I looked it up. (laughs) And that really is those who pursue an understanding of what is truth. There are five, believe it or not, major theories of truth. The first is known as the correspondence theory. Pardon me, I am really irritated by this thing in my ear. (laughs) The correspondence truth essentially is such that uh, a proposition or a claim of truth must accord or agree with reality or fact, the correspondence theory of truth. The second major theory is known as the coherence theory which suggests that a given proposition or claim of truth is consistent with other true propositions or claims of truth. So they, they cohere with one another. The third major theory is known as the pragmatic theory of truth. So the focus here is more on, um, I guess, the practical or the performative aspects of a claim of truth. Does it pan out in life, essentially? Then there's the so-called redundance theory of truth, where uh, this is looking on the, the proposition or the claim of truth, sharing the property of truth with other claims of truth. Very similar in many regards to the coherence truth theory. And then fifthly, the semantic theory of truth. And that is simply an observation of the uh, nature or property of truth in a sentence or in a proposition, in a claim. The Jews who had believed in Jesus had actually encountered the truth. They had not only heard him teach, 
But they had the opportunity to observe whether what he taught was how he lived. They listened to his words and they watched his life. They actually had encountered the person of Jesus, truth itself. Jesus, later in John's Gospel, says to his apostles, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So here in our passage this morning, you will know the truth. That phrase, you will know, comes of a single Greek term, which conveys very pointedly a first-hand knowing or knowledge. It is experiential. It is a lived knowing. The knowing that Jesus speaks of here isn't something that's just overheard. Rather, it's an enduring result of an encounter with God, with truth itself. These believing Jews answered Jesus with these words, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? To be enslaved is to be subjected voluntarily or involuntarily to a servitude to another individual, a state that brings about a profound reduction of both legal and social standing of a person, diminishing them to the place of mere property. So these Jews, these believing Jews that Jesus was speaking to utterly rejected the idea that they didn't already enjoy real freedom. And that's kind of odd because their day-to-day lives were under the rule and under the occupation of the Roman legions that controlled their, uh, their lives. So the claim of never having been enslaved to anyone is notable on several levels. First, the nation of Israel, historically, is one that includes periods of slavery, periods so long that generations live their entire existence enslaved. And the prophets of ancient Israel, time and time again, as we find in the Old Testament, reminded the nation of Israel of how God had delivered them time and time again from bondage, from slavery. It seems that these believing Jews really seem to take more pride in being children of Abraham than children of God. Now, the people of the ancient Near East could be enslaved through many mechanisms. They could be sold into slavery. They could, in fact, put themselves or sell themselves into slavery because of debt. Slavery was often a punishment for serious crime. Certainly prisoners of war or those who were uh, conquered peoples found themselves enslaved to the victors. 
and simply one could be born into slavery. Incredibly, in the Roman Empire, scholars estimate that a third of the population of major cities like Ephesus, Antioch, Corinth, and even Rome itself were slaves. A third of the population. And yet people enslaved under Roman law, at least during the time of Tiberius Caesar, they could generally anticipate being freed by age 30 based on the laws of that day. And once released under Roman law, one could become a citizen. Those who were considered household slaves or servants could be released from slavery even sooner if the master of the household chose to grant their freedom. Slaves could also be ransomed. Their debt could be paid by another. And when someone was released from slavery, Roman law not only granted the opportunity for citizenship, but if the slave released was a man, they could potentially gain the right to vote. And yet these believing Jews denied their own heritage. But Jesus didn't engage with their false claim of having never been enslaved to anyone. Instead, he shifts the focus from the social and the legal to the spiritual realm. Listen to Jesus' answer to their claim. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So their claim of having never been enslaved to anyone, Jesus simply reframes, instead pointing them to the truth of a practice of sin enslaves one to sin. Now, most of us, I think, can identify with the Apostle Paul, who wrote about the reality of the ongoing struggle that life places us in the midst of, choosing God's ways or the ways of sin. Again, that's why it's so important to abide in Jesus' words. Like the psalmist said, I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But it has to get from here to here, from the mind to the heart in order to choose to not sin against him. But sinful habits can be broken. It begins with repentance. You know, the, the phrase that Jesus used here, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever, seems a bit odd in our day. But it would have been very clear to the Jews of his day the Jews who had believed in him. In the ancient Near East, a slave would gain Roman citizenship, as I said, upon being released. But significantly, they would also lose their place within the extended family, the oikos, that they had previously held 
and served. In contrast, the son specifically, or a descendant more generally, would continue to hold their place, a place of authority in and for some over that extended family forever. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And he is clearly pointing to himself here. He is the Son. He was reminding these believing Jews, and by John's gospel, we are being reminded today that the Son forever holds the authority to grant freedom. The Son holds forever the authority to redeem all who believe in him from bondage or slavery to sin. Now, one very common reason people in the ancient world became enslaved, as I mentioned earlier, was a method, if you will, to pay off a debt that they could never collect money enough to meet without selling themselves into slavery. And there's a parallel here in Jesus' words where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave. You see, when a person habitually thinks, chooses, and then acts in a way that is sinful, that is a departure from God's ways, over time, that habit enslaves us to sin. But remember, anyone who is enslaved can be redeemed. The Son holds forever the authority to grant freedom, the authority to redeem all. My debt, your debt, our debt can be paid in full by the authority of the Son. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, wrote these words, It's by grace we have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So on this Fourth of July, the day that we as a nation celebrate freedom. If you've never received God's gift of freedom through the Son, or maybe you have, but through habit, have found yourself once again enslaved, what better day to celebrate Independence Day, Independence Day than today? Believe in Jesus the Son. Abide in his word. And begin your great experiment with freedom. Allow me to pray. Father, we are grateful for and we celebrate together our nation today. And we ask that by your grace, we as a people would move ever closer to the ideals that were set to paper some 245 years ago 
Father, we are thankful for your offer of freedom from the bondage or the debt of sin that you have extended to us through your Son. We ask that your Spirit will help us to remember, to abide, to live out the words of Jesus. And as Zach spoke earlier this morning, that we would become what we behold. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy today as the gift it is. God bless you.